0: I don't know if you've ever been in a uh, situation where you've really put a lot of thought into doing something for someone. Like, say, so you've really, really gone out of your way to do something nice. Uh, you've bought them a present. You've put lots of thought in it. It's really expensive. Or you've organised a surprise birthday party or all that sort of thing. And you're waiting there looking for the look on the person's face when they walk in or when they open the present. And then you just see. That they're disappointed if you had that situation I have this situation every Christmas uh, not with Victoria who is happy she's you know very happy to have whatever I've gone to the trouble of buying for her uh, my mother is a notoriously difficult person to buy a Christmas presents for and she has this way of saying as she looks at it going oh that's interesting <laughs> and it's just like you're saying, oh I've gone to so much effort so every year you try harder and every year it's anyway it's more disappointing uh, but they put on a smile often, don't they? And they sort of pretend they like it. You know, I've always wanted this, but you know, you've you've worked it out. They, they're not interested at all. It's really not what they're after. Your motives are good. You want to please the person, but you just sort of fail in the execution. Well, that is David in tonight's passage. Come with me to two Samuel seven. Uh, that is David. He sets out to please God. His motives are good. He sets out to please God, but he just Somehow misses the mark. So let's get into it. Here's David, and at last, if you remember where we've been going in two Samuel so far, at last the battles are over. They've uh, all their enemies have sort of been beaten down, a- and David is king, and he's even taken Jerusalem. So here he is. He's built a palace for himself to live in in Jerusalem, a palace made of cedar, and uh, most importantly, I seem to be going in and out here with regularity, that's all right, I'll just keep talking, you'll listen. Uh, God has given him rest from all his enemies and for this one little moment in the history of Israel, David is there in Jerusalem, sort of sitting back with his feet up saying, I've got nothing to do. This is just a great moment and to his great credit, David's thoughts don't turn to himself at that time, this is the difference between Saul who we've met already and David Saul would have turned to, well, how can I make things great for me? David's thoughts turn where? To God. And that's the difference between the two of them. And David says, he turns to Nathan, the new prophet, who's taken over from Samuel, very important character in the story. He turns to Nathan and he says, look at verse 2, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. He doesn't even need to go on, does he? You know what he's saying. He's saying, how can this be right? How can I, even if I am the king, how can I live in this impressive permanent building while the ark of God, the, the symbol of God's presence, is there in a tent? with, with nowhere, God's got nowhere, I've got this, this temple. He doesn't need to go on. And Nathan the prophet doesn't even need to think about it doesn't sort of think oh, I'll go and have a think about this idea David he says no 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 that is just so obviously right so surely God's house should be bigger and more impressive than the king's house so look at verse three Nathan told the king go and do all that is on your heart for the Lord is with you so he's saying David you're right go and build this magnificent temple for God of course that's a good idea and he doesn't say it but the point is God will love what you are doing for him David this will please the Lord. But Nathan the prophet wasn't speaking as a prophet at that point, he was giving his own opinion Uh, and he was doing that very, very dangerous thing that Christians for the last 2,000 years have been notorious for doing, which is assuming that we know how to please God, assuming that we know what will honour God, instead of asking God, God what do you want us to do to please you and honour you? And so that night, David speaks to Nathan and says, Nathan, actually, you should have talked to me first. So look at verse 5. He says, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling in all my journeys with all the Israelites have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel why haven't you built me a house of cedar now this isn't God's final word on this topic Uh, in one generation's time King Solomon will build a temple for God in Jerusalem and God will be pleased with it Uh, but even then God stressed don't fall into the trap of thinking I live in it don't fall into the trap of thinking you can put God in a building. God wanted them to know that the ark, that, that symbol of his presence, it's always been carried around in a tent because you can't keep God trapped in one place. God is wherever his people are and so God didn't want to be trapped in a building because he wanted to move around with wherever the people were going. So God says to David, why on earth do you think you should build a house for me now? And anyway, God says, I never told you to do this. This wasn't my idea. When did I ever say to any leader of Israel, hey, build me a house. This is just one of those little reminders that we need to hear, I think. God tells us how to honour him. God tells us how he wants to be honoured. It's not up to us to work it out for ourselves. Even David need to be careful that he honoured God the way God wanted to be honoured even Nathan needed to be reminded of that David's motives were good this just seemed the right thing to do even Nathan thought it was a great idea but God said don't presume you know what I want I'll tell you what I want every so often people come back from uh, Europe and that sort of thing and they say Phil you should go and see these incredible cathedrals in England and in France like Notre Dame and St Paul's Cathedral and all that sort of thing and for some reason I think you're a minister you'll like to see these big churches. <laughs> to tell you the truth I think that would be like my worst nightmare of a holiday. <laughs> I've never been there but you know I think I would just come back angry and annoyed. Now I'm sure the people who back in you know 1512 spent every year of their life and then their children's life and the life of their children after building these massive buildings and these incredible spires and these massive ceilings I thought I assumed they had good motives I assumed they were attempting to express something of how wonderful God is probably many of them were trying to say we want to build a bigger church than the mosque in the Middle East or something like that to say the Christian God is the most wonderful God this is how awesome our God is in the true sense of that word awesome But God never asked them to do it in the Bible. As I read the New Testament, I can't help but think that God would rather that people spent less on a cathedral and more on feeding the poor and less on building massive buildings and perhaps instead build a a building that's a little more practical and instead spend money sending missionaries out to preach the gospel. And you see, isn't God much more impressed? With a church of people who love him and who are willing to repent of their sin and seek to live lives that honor him, isn't he much more impressed with that than some building that takes up the middle of the whole city? You see, this is the thing. All too often, we human beings, we devise our projects and we devise our plans and we say, like David, surely this is what God wants. We've often got sort of right motives this will glorify God, this will honour God but we need to test them against God's word and actually ask, is that what God wants? We need to let God tell us how to honour God and God's word tells us how to honour him and there's very little to do with buildings and monuments and plaques and all that sort of thing. How does God's word say we honour him? Well at its heart it's by obeying his son, it's by believing his son by putting our trust in his son, and then living lives of humility and repentance, seeking to glorify him. That is how we honour the Lord. And I think David learnt this lesson. You read about it in lots of the Psalms. I've just picked one, Ross, if we can put Psalm 51 up on the screen, when David said, you God don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, how do we honour God? His Word tells us how and it's all about faith and humility and repentance and godliness. That's how we honour God. But back to Nathan and David. If you just left it there at sort of the end of verse 7, you'd sort of think God has just put David in his place. You'd think, you know, David has upset God or some displeased God but actually nothing could be further from the truth. God mightn't want David to build him a house But now, he tells David, that's because I have far bigger plans for you than a little building project in Jerusalem. Now, there are some chapters of the Bible you just have to know to understand the whole story. There there are just five or six chapters in the Old Testament that you have to know that are sort of like the, the building blocks you have to have in place if you're going to understand the whole rest of the story. So chapters like Genesis 1 to 3, where God creates the world, and we learn how human sin ruins the world, our rebellion against God. Genesis 12 is another one of those key chapters, where God makes his covenant with Abraham, good, enough people there said that to keep me happy, good. (laughs) Exodus 20, where God gives his people the Ten Ten Commandments, well done. They are just the key moments of the story of God relating to the world, God relating to his people, of God working to save us, they're they're just key chapters and if you by the way couldn't answer that question, Abraham, Ten Commandments, those other things I said, then you need to do intro to the Bible, I'm like a broken record on this, you cannot understand the Bible if you don't have those building blocks in place. So people sometimes come to me and they go, I'm reading Isaiah, I'm reading Zechariah and I don't understand a word of it. And I say, well you've got to understand the building blocks that it builds on, that's why you should do the Intro to the Bible course we offer, because that's where you look at those, those chapters to make sense of the whole Bible. Who here, put up your hand if you've done Intro to the Bible at some point. That is wonderful. Now I'm not going to ask the other people to put up their hands, but you're now going to take out your feedback slip and you're going to write on there, next time Intro to the Bible, sign me up. Put my name. I'm serious, I'm not joking, you think I'm joking, I'm not, I want you to do it. If you haven't done it yet, put on your feedback slip now, we're doing it again in the new year and you're, you're coming. There you go, you're already booked up. So that's sorted. We had 15 or 20 people last time, we're expecting 50 next time. So there you go. But the reason I say that is this is one of those chapters. 2 Samuel 7 is one of just the five or six chapters of the Old Testament you have to know and understand to understand God's plans, not just for his people, but for the whole world. You don't just have to understand 277 to understand the Bible, you have to do it to understand Jesus and you have to know it to understand everything about life. That's how important this is, that's how important what God says to David at this point is. But to understand this, we need to go back a step and we need to go back and look at those earlier key chapters. I'm not apologising about this, tonight the rest of this sermon is going to be a little bit more like a lecture uh, than a sermon because what I'm doing is I'm going to try and teach you how this chapter fits in with the whole Bible so that's what we're doing so come with me take notes it's that important so the whole Old Testament from the very beginning is the story of God dealing with our biggest problem so there's the the basic storyline of the Bible God dealing with our biggest problem which is our sin our rebellion against God and right back there in Genesis God promises I will fix this problem and so he goes and he picks this obscure man who doesn't even know him. What's that man's name? Abraham. Well done, more people are starting to say it. Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make these promises to Abraham. Now what were the promises to Abraham? So he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That's the first, first one. I'm going to make you... So many descendants that it's like the stars in the sky the sand on the seashore going to make you a great nation I'm going to give you a land a place where you'll be secure where you'll have rest and I am going to bless you the three promises to Abraham so if you couldn't say if you weren't part of the at that point (laughs) then intro to the Bible on your feedback slip it's that important you can't understand the rest of the Bible unless you know this stuff so the three promises to Abraham but it didn't stop there did it He said, I'm not just blessing you and your descendants, Abraham. I'm doing this so that then I will, through you, I will bless the whole world. The last bit of the promises. And so if you like, if you want to sort of summarise it, what God says to Abraham is, I am going to save you. I'm going to save a people. And then through that people, I'm going to save the whole world. I'm going to save people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue on earth. So then the rest of the Old Testament is God working to fulfill those promises so whenever you read anything in the old testament you're meant to have in your head how does this fit in with God's plan to save a people for his very own and then save the whole world and bless the whole world so we need to have that in our minds as we listen to what he says to David here so now come with me two Samuel 7 verse 8 now this is what you are to say to my servant David this is what the Lord of hosts says I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. So remember that's what happened already. David wasn't meant to be king. It wasn't like David was born with his dad was a king, his dad was a farmer and he was a shepherd, and so God plucked him from obscurity and said, I'm going to make you the king. And it's like God's saying here, you've told me what you'd like to do for me. Let me just remind you what I've done for you, David. But now God says, it hasn't finished yet. Don't put your feet up just yet, David. We haven't finished yet. And God lists off these incredible promises to David. Firstly, God says, I am going to make your name great. You are going to be the most famous person in the world. So look at verse 9. He says, I will make a name for you, like that of the greatest in the land if you want proof that God keeps his word we are that proof tonight we're still talking about David 2,800 years later we're still talking about it that's how great his name is then God's next promise I am going to secure you in this land and I'm going to give you total rest from all your enemies so look at verse 10 he says I'll establish a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again Evildoers doers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God's saying you know this temporary peace you have now David, I'm going to make it permanent. I'm going to give you a place where there is total security, where all these enemies will never ever touch you again. But the key here is, if you know your Bible, you immediately think God is purposely using exactly the same sort of words he used when he made those promises to Abraham all those years before God is saying David I am still at work to keep those wonderful promises I made right back in the very beginning of making you a great nation of giving you a land of giving you rest of giving you blessing but the key point that God is adding here and why this is so important God is saying David it's through you that I am going to fulfill all those promises you are at the very center of my plans for all of humanity now that must have blown David's mind don't you think you have to have God come and personally say to you not just you're part of my chosen people not just I've saved you but you are the middle the center of it all you are it you're the most important person in history now every human being thinks they are the most important person in history, you know, that's called human sin, every one of us thinks we're vitally important to all God's plans for all of creation, let me tell you, you're not that important, nor am I, David is, David was the most important person in history and so God says, David, you are not going to build me a house, I am going to build you a house but it's a great play on words here, and it works in both the Hebrew and the English which is lucky for us because most of us don't speak Hebrew David says I want to build a house for you made of wood and stone God says I'll use the same word but I'm going to build you a house in the sense of a dynasty you know like we talk about the house of Windsor in England the queen and her son and his son and all that sort of thing that's what God is saying you thought you were going to build me a house made of wood I'm going to build you a house of people that's what I'm going to do David your sons are going to rule after you but it's more than that even because God doesn't just say David your son and his son and his son are going to rule and, and forever there'll be a king who is related to you God says David somewhere down in that family line I am going to raise up one particular son of David there's going to be one who is very very special and it's through that one that one descendant, that I will fulfill all my promises. I will bring salvation and blessing, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. See how important this chapter is for the whole Bible? In fact, all of history. This promise is the key to understanding everything in the Bible. So come with me to verse 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. There's that play on words. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, that's after you're dead, David, I will raise up after you your descendant, not descendants, your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God's saying, David, you won't see all my promises fulfilled. You're going to die one day. You're going to get buried. But I will do it through your family, through your son, maybe, or your great-grandson or your great-great-grandson. I will keep my promises. And this is the beginning of what we call the messianic hope. And as I say, it's the key to the rest of the Old Testament and, in fact, the rest of the Bible. And so, from this point on, with the arrival of every new king descended from David, the people asked, and we're meant to ask, is this the one? Is this the promised king? Now, what does God tell David about this descendant? Take out your outline for a moment and if you haven't got out already and I've put three sort of arrow dot points there for what God says to David about this descendant the first is God says he's the one who's going to build me a house so verse 13 he will build a house for my name so you're not going to build that temple David but this descendant of yours will second thing God says is this will be no ordinary king he's going to rule forever Queen Elizabeth II, who's on the throne of England at the moment, has been in power for 65 years now. And people are amazed. You know, you're not meant to have kings and queens anymore, but she's been going for 65 years. Well, God is saying to David, that's nothing. That's nothing. Look at verse 13 again. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever forever did you get that how many times did he say forever this king won't rule for a time then die and hand on to another king he will rule forever and then thirdly he and god will be as close as a father and a son so see there in verse 14 i will be father to him and he'll be a son to me so three things god promises about this king who will come he will build God's house, he will rule forever and he will be like a son to God the Father. Now it's impossible to stress just how important this messianic hope is. It's not too big a thing to say that the rest of the Bible is about waiting for this son of David who will rule forever to appear and so after David died every king could have been the one. And it looked like he'd come with the very next king. Who was the next king after David? Solomon. Solomon. Anyone who didn't answer? Again, intro to the Bible, put it in there. When David died, Solomon took over. And Solomon was everything you would expect this promised king to be. He was the wisest man who's ever lived. The people came from all over the world just to sit at his feet, and listen to his wisdom and it looked like look at this we're being blessed like God promised and he's blessing the world through Solomon surely this guy this guy must be the promised Messiah and then Solomon did something incredible he built the temple for God and it was the most impressive building in the world of that time. People came from all over the ancient world to see Solomon's temple. There's other cultures that wrote about just how incredible the temple Solomon built for God was. So people thought, is this the one? And in one sense, Solomon was fulfilling this prophecy. And that's the thing with understanding the Old Testament, it's often partially fulfilled in a moment in history. But then you realise there's something better still to come to fulfill it proper, properly and so he very quickly what happened to Solomon Solomon fell badly he had the same problem his father had which was he couldn't have just one wife that was Solomon's big issue and so it was very very clear and even more clear when he died there must be still a bigger better fulfillment of this promise to come But king after king came after Solomon, and not one of them came close. And you see, they might have forgotten about this great hope. That's what happens when a promise isn't fulfilled after a while. You give up on it. You forget about it. But why didn't they forget about it? Why didn't the Israelites forget about this great promise? It's because prophet after prophet came. Basically, the rest of your Old Testament prophet after prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi and all those other guys whose names you can't pronounce they all came and they all said he is still coming this is the thing sometimes people come to me and they say I've been reading Zechariah Phil and I can't understand a word of it I've been reading Isaiah and I can't understand it and I say you have to know 2 Samuel 7 because that is the way you understand these books of the Bible and so they kept saying, remember 2 Samuel 7. I've just picked a couple of maybe a hundred examples from the Old Testament. If we pull it up on the screen, Ross. From the prophet Isaiah, he said, He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So you see, the prophet Isaiah is saying, Remember 2 Samuel 7, a descendant of David is coming. The next one, Ross. From Isaiah 11 verse 1, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, that's why he says that. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. See, this is the point. The rest of the Old Testament is all saying, keep waiting. And so for 800 years, what did they do? They waited. And they waited. And they waited until it was hopeless. Hopeless. Because there were no kings left. There were no kings descended from David. King Herod was a pretender sitting on the throne. And then what happened? You don't need to have done intro to the Bible to get this one right. In walks Jesus. Nine times out of ten, when I ask a question, the answer is going to be Jesus, you know that. In walks Jesus. And you know how at the start of your in the Gospels in Matthew and Luke. They have that long list of names where it says and he was a son of 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 and we're tempted to skip it aren't we and every time we get a roster with the Bible reading on it we go oh great I'm not reading that one good up the front with all those I names and all that sort of thing they're actually the most important chapters in the New Testament they're that important because those genealogies say this one is the one descended from David Jesus could prove through both Joseph and Mary he is descended from David. And as Matthew starts the New Testament, he tells us, put it up on the screen, Ross, Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the historical record of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. And when Jesus was baptised, what did God say from heaven? This is my son, with him I am well pleased. Like 2 Samuel 7 promised, a son of David will come. And he will be like a son to me. But Jesus never built a temple, did he? Jesus wasn't big on building projects. In fact, he seemed to be against them more than anything. But actually, he did. In John's gospel, go home and read John 3 this week. In in John's gospel, Jesus made it clear. He said, This is the temple. Not this. This is not a temple. Well, in one sense, it is. But (laughs) Jesus said, My body is the temple because this is where God dwells on earth, in me, in his son. In Jesus and Jesus said and you can tear this temple down but I'll rebuild it in three days and they thought Jesus was talking about the stones but what was he talking about? He's talking about his resurrection. So he said there is the temple, there is where God lives on earth, I have built the temple for God and then Jesus the New, Rest of the New Testament promises us that he builds another temple, what is that temple? Us, here. Christians like saying my body is a temple. But actually, the New Testament more says, no, together, we are a temple. Together, God's spirit dwells in us individually, but then collectively, we are the temple of God. Do you want to go and meet with God somewhere? Don't find a big building with a high ceiling. You're probably unlikely to find him in there, sadly. Find a place where Christians meet around the word of God. That's where God is. That's where his temple is. But of course, Jesus wasn't quite what they were expecting from 2 Samuel 7, was he? because he didn't look like a king he didn't come with pomp and ceremony and when they killed him even his disciples gave up on him and they said maybe we're wrong maybe he isn't the one they promised how could he rule forever now you don't rule forever when you're dead but then what happened three days later he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and death once and for all and now he sits at God's right hand in heaven and from there he will come one day to judge the living and the dead. And that is when he will bring in his kingdom once and for all. As the book of Revelation says, I've gone right through the Bible tonight, right at the end of the Bible, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That is the one 2 Samuel 7 promised us, our Lord Jesus. Now, as I say, this has been a sort of a bit of a lecture through the Bible tonight. Uh, But I want to remind you, this is not an academic exercise. Jesus is God's king and he offers God's blessing to anyone who will trust in him and make him their king. So of course the only real question from this, it's good for you to know the whole Bible and how it fits together and that's why I've gone through it all, but the real question that matters is not do you understand how 2 Samuel 7 fits in with it all, But the question that matters is, is the king it was talking about your king? That's the question. Is Jesus your king? Have you repented of your sin and turned and trusted in him? And now do you seek to live your life honoring him in the way he tells you to in his word? See, it's funny. David knew that's what mattered in the end. He knew as amazing as this was about him and his family... This was actually a message not for david but for the whole world look at what he says come back to 2 samuel chapter 7 last verse we're looking at verse 19 he says what you have done so far god was a little thing to you lord god for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future but then he says and this is a revelation for mankind lord god david is saying you're talking to me god and you're saying wonderful things about me But this is for everyone. Everyone needs to hear about this. As I close, do you know, humanly speaking, I say humanly speaking because God is always at work behind the scenes, but humanly speaking, this passage is why I'm a Christian. This passage. So, because for me, I didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, I had to be convinced of it. And I went and I read through the whole Bible twice. And I was sitting in a library reading and when i got to 2 samuel 7 for the second time and i realized and i saw how all of the old testament points to this point and then all of the rest of the bible flows out of this point and how it all fits together even though it was written by all these different human authors over more than a thousand years when i saw that i decided this is true this is the word of god this is not some concoction come up by two drunk men in the first century who wanted to have a joke to see how long it would last That's how many other religions started. This is the word of God. That's what convinced me more than anything else. And what it convinced me is to not believe in Jesus and to not follow him and to not live my life to him would be absolute foolishness. Would be the most stupid thing I could ever do. And so I became a Christian. And that is what I want you to take away today. From this chapter of scripture I just want you to see how wonderful God's word is I'm amazed when I talk to non-Christian people and they tell me oh the Bible's full of inconsistencies and the Bible who could believe the Bible I say, have you ever read it you have to be stupid to say that I'm sorry to be disrespectful but you have to be stupid to just discount the Bible out of hand like that it's the height of foolishness and the height of stupidity I want you to see the wonderful richness of the Bible and to just be amazed by the way God has worked through all of history to fulfill his promises to humanity and what I want you to be reminded of tonight is that Jesus is your king and he will rule forever so trust him and live for him that is what we believe that is the message we preach and that is the message every person needs to hear. Jesus is the king. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Our heavenly father we thank you for the way all scripture points us to Jesus but we thank you especially for this wonderful chapter and the way it is so central to understanding all of your promises and so father we pray and give you thanks that you did not leave us waiting forever, that you sent your son, our king Jesus who defeated death once and for all and offers us eternal life. And for anyone here who does not yet call Jesus their Lord, we pray that they might repent and believe in him. And we pray for the rest of us that we might never lose that amazement at your word, but especially that amazement at our King and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.